This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, send me a text, 2057. Send me an email, inbox at rallycheck.radio. We're going to be talking economics with Dr. Bryce Wilkinson. No better man to be talking economics to than Bryce. Uh, years at Treasury, uh, flash degrees, spent his lifetime uh, doing his analysis. Uh, sometimes I look at Bryce and I think, bit dry, but the listeners love it because it's this cool calmness and this clear analysis that Bryce provides. Good morning, Bryce. Yes, good morning, Rodney. Thank you for having me on uh, your program again. I uh, love it. I should say, too, that you're at the New Zealand Initiative, <clears throat> which pumps out more analysis and more work that's more useful than every government department I know, and it is uh, a treasure trove of analysis and information about what ails New Zealand, and thank you for that, because I don't know where people would go otherwise. Um, it's tremendous. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be part of the team, um, Rodney. I'm the old guy, of course, but uh, Eric Crampton is just phenomenally productive yes. as an economist, as you know, and across so many subjects. And then we've got these lovely classical educated uh, people in the firm uh, working on education yes. and uh, history of uh, New Zealand infrastructure and that sort of thing. It's such a pleasure. Well, we had uh, James Kirstead on, and I meant to talk to him about University Bloke, and we squeezed it in in the last 10 minutes because we spent 50 minutes talking ancient history and classics. It was just wonderful. And he made it, he made it come alive. He must be a tremendous lecturer and he must be a wonderful colleague because it's such an insight to have that insight of long history. Yes, uh, it is. Yeah. It, it's a tremendous is. thing. Now, you wrote a very, well, I'd say shocking piece because you just benchmarked New Zealand against Ireland. And you sort of think of Ireland, and it's sort of, funny enough, a similar country to New Zealand. And you took us back to 1979 and then brought us forward. And it was, well, depressing, actually. Tell us about the that benchmark, when Ireland was relative to New Zealand in 1979 and where we are now. Yes, um, it shocked me too, Rodney. Uh, it made me feel I hadn't been paying enough attention to Ireland. Um, but back in 1979... Um, its income, you know, it was regarded as one of the poor countries in Europe, and its income per capita um, was uh, quite a lot lower than ours. Um, it was about 22% lower, I think, the, the correct figures in my paper there, in 79. And, you know, we felt we were a wealthy and prosperous country. We, we thought we'd been third in the world in the 1950s. Well, uh, on the latest figures, um, Ireland's just... Uh, it's it's 78% uh, higher than New Zealand. So this is gross national income per capita, and that's the income accruing to New Zealand uh, to Irish residents. It's, it, it excludes the income earned in Ireland by foreigners who've invested heavily in the country. So it's the benefit to residents we're talking about, and My we're goodness. comparing that with New Zealand. And it's, it was got, had got to be 77% higher by 2021. So, you know, that should make any New Zealander sit on there who cares about the country 
uh, sit on the edge of their seats and, and asking themselves, what's Ireland doing better than us? So well, just to give that a context, yeah. and I'm sort of rounding up by a chunk, that's like in 1979, Ireland was a third poorer than us. So imagine your wage cut by a third. That would be yeah, 20, 22%. Yeah. A, 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 well, over a fifth. Right? Yeah, yeah, over a fifth, yeah. Getting to a quarter. And now that same worker is, on average, earning 78% more. It's approaching double what we're earning. I mean, 100 would be double. It's at 78%. So yeah. they've gone from being, you know, a quarter behind us to being three quarters ahead of us. It's extraordinary. And that's, that's in my working life. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I'd, I'd had my eyes on the likes of Singapore and um, and Hong Kong. And, you know, uh, Lee Kuan Yew wrote that history of Singapore where, and the title of it was a good title. It was From Third World to First World in One Generation. Well, when I looked at the data, Ireland had actually done better to grown more than the Asian tigers. And by 2021, it was the only one of Hong Kong, um, Singapore, uh, and Ireland which had a higher national income per capita than the US. So it, it had gone past the, the the Celtic tiger had gone past the Asian tigers, and I just hadn't realised. Um, you know, I hadn't been watching it close enough to realise that it was outperforming Singapore and Hong Kong. There's that um, you focus on labor productivity and this is to an economist what matters right productivity it's crucial it's crucial if you care about uh, lifting people's incomes over half a generation or less and of course all of politics focuses on distribution and um explain to us the significance and the difference between the productivity in Ireland and the productivity of New Zealand and how that's produced a different result. Yeah, so this is um, the second chart in the paper which we've just released, and um, uh, it's galling, actually. <laughs> um, um, I, now, the measure is the, is the OECD's measure, the Organisation for the Economic Cooperation and Development, and they publish this. Um, for member countries, there are about 38 uh, member countries, and they're mainly the prosperous countries around the world. And in 1970, um, uh, Ireland's uh, GDP per capita, which is the total of production, value-added production in a country, um, uh, and you express that per capita, and that's an indication of how much um, income has been generated from domestic production for the benefit of foreign investors and domestic residents alike. And that's what has been produced with the capital and the labour, which is going into all the businesses in the country and into government. So that was uh, well below New Zealand's in 1970. And um, now it's about 14 times higher than New Zealand. Now, this has nothing to do with inflation. Inflation's taken out of this. This is really, um, uh, you know, the volume of material being produced per worker. So um, 
uh, a worker in Ireland on average is is producing maybe 14 times the quantity of output per worker of New Zealand. Um, that's staggering. Uh, that's, that, I can't even wrap my head around that, Bryce. Yeah, so what what lifts income per, per worker, output per worker, is the amount of productive capital wrapped around each worker. So um, the redistributionists think that sort of capital is, is sort of bad and capitalists are bad, but uh, workers who, who can produce more because they're given better equipment, more resources, um, they can achieve more, and that makes them more valuable. They can be paid more. The second thing is related to that, that um, human capital is really important. So workers who are capable of uh, learning how to use the more productive and sophisticated equipment and working efficiently, they, they get to be more skilled, and that skill is reflected in their wage rates too. Uh, there's also innovation, what's called, economists call it total factor productivity or multi-factor productivity, and that is where uh, capital gets smarter too. New technologies come in and uh, the uh, the new machine which replaces the old one is much better. So, so workers can um, produce more with that for the benefit of both the capital provider and the worker. So while we've been telling all these Irish jokes, the Irish have been busy getting smarter, getting more yeah. productive and getting richer. And yes. astonishingly, they've done better than Singapore at its best. Yes, per, per worker. And, 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 you know, Singapore has been one of these standout um, countries in the last 50 years. It really has gone from third world to first world in one generation. If that worker in Ireland is producing 14 times more than a worker in New Zealand, how come he or she isn't 14 times paid 14 times more? Uh, yeah, I haven't looked up what the, the relative wages, uh, but the first point is we're talking about averages. and um, I see. And, and, and uh, average incomes are never evenly distributed. The median worker earns less than the average worker. Yes. So, um, that, yeah, that is another thing I'd like to find time to look at. It's they might have, presumably when you have this massive growth, you also yeah. have this massive entrepreneurship and you have a lot of gains accruing to the entrepreneurs. Yeah, uh, and that's certainly part of the Ireland story. Um, let me just say on the wage rates, I would have done the wage comparison if the, if I, if the OECD had given me a measure, um, but I use GDP per capita. Don't um, worry, that's fine. That's what Tell I me. But, but coming back to the entrepreneurship thing, yeah, the background to my paper is that the New Zealand Initiative, um, led by Oliver Hartwich and Roger Partridge, took a, a, a business mission to Ireland of chief executives. I didn't go on that, but I prepared these charts uh, for that mission, just as background information, and because I was interested myself. When they got over there on the innovation thing, what they said was that whereas... New Zealand, we sort of take a, a steering approach to foreign in, investment and um, governments keep telling uh, foreign investors that it's a privilege if we allow them to invest here. 
in Ireland, they said their, their attitude's the opposite. You, they spoke to educationalists and they were absolutely fixed on the project of training their pupils so that they'd have the skills that sophisticated high-technology foreign capital coming into the country would need to be able to employ. So they said it was um, the nation that got signed up to a narrative of being open, open to foreign investment, uh, building the education uh, skills so that they can supply that and recognition that that was best for everybody. And that was, of course, similar to Singapore opening itself up um, to foreign... Uh, yeah, yeah, Singapore Singapore bought it, built its prosperity on foreign investment, so did mm. Hong Kong. Um, and, not, and all a, country, not all countries have. And, of course, in a, a, to an economist... Um, People investing in your country is the most wondrous thing. Yes, because that's how, um, New Ze- how New Zealand developed from colonial yes. times. The London came from the capital came from London, and it's this old Marxist, um, Leninist, hoary thing that when people invest in your country, they somehow rob you, and yes. um, you you lose control of your destiny. And nothing could be further from the truth because you lose control of your destiny by being poor. And you gain your sovereignty by being prosperous. And yes. um, Ireland now, being a prosperous country, has more options and more choices in front of it than it did um, relative to us 50 years ago. That's the essential point about wealth and high incomes. It gives you options. And and in dire times, they are valuable. Just on the foreign direct investment, there is one important qualification to make, and that is it's got to be well done, and in particular, the country's got to be free of corruption. So mm. you look at Africa now and see um, China going in and investing in resources. Um, if if it's straight government to government and the, the home government is corrupt, then uh, it could well be highly ex- mm. extorted. So um, sound institutions are really important. And that's true for domestic investment too. If the situation is corrupt, um, the money is going to go to corrupt people, and it'll be invested in the wrong things. And and corrupt projects in the sense that they're not offering the best return. I was quite shocked growing up when I started studying economics, and I remember a textbook that we had. I did development economics, and it was I can remember it to this day. It was Michael Tadara. I'm sure you've heard of him. And, mm-hmm. and and the text was, and he'd done the study of government aid to poor countries and why it always uh, failed. And it was just extraordinary because he explained that what we thought of as aid was basically government-to-government transfers. And so uh, rich countries were handing money off to these other uh, countries, but they were giving it to their governments. And invariably the rest... The reason the government, that country was poor it is was terrible. The governments were already oppressing their people. Yes, they were trying to fight against them. And here was the Western world giving the corrupt guys more money and, to buy and, more military to uh, to oppress their people. We were looking at these poor, starving kids, and they were poor and starving because of this tyrannical government. And then, out of the goodness of our heart, our government would be sending that tyrannical dictator more money. Um, it was to, to pop them 
and essentially he always it was always he would use the money to um keep in power and, and this is this extraordinary thing about economics because it takes an everyday like Tom Soul uh, an everyday narrative and turn it on its head so that when a foreign company invests in a poor country and employs people that's the best thing in the world for those people but we 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 we, we say oh look nike are ripping them off and you're saying no they're generating income and wealth they're lifting that country and when as they as they gain in their prosperity they won't they won't need to be sending their kids to work there's there's no way around this you have to produce a country has to produce in order to have wealth and you read the newspaper listen to the politicians re- listen to the opinion writers outside of the new zealand initiative and it's just we're endlessly cutting up a cake that no one's baking. Yes, it, and it's partly a time horizon thing. I think people people who want government to spend more money or regulate to stop people from doing this or that, they don't think about how it's going to play out, um, what how people are going to respond. So they don't think, like the example we're talking about, about saying government, uh, government to government aid is great and the prosperous countries should be giving 1% of their GDP to foreign governments. Well, it's a failure to think through what's going to happen if you give money to a corrupt di- dictatorship. Mm. And that's what I noticed in the 1980s with uh, the, you know, the Roger Douglas and Ruth Richardson reforms that they were painful in the short run because things were so out of kilter. The deficits in public debt were so so high. Um, but people who thought ahead and um, could see that incentives were improving, and it was important to get out of the hole. But the the opponents could see no more, nothing further than the immediate pain, and it was a time. The big difference between those of us, including me, who are part of that debate, was in time horizon and um, unended consequences. I remember when the farm subsidies were being ripped out, the the Dominion Post ran a front-page article, the entire wire wrapper was dying, (laughs) and uh, it's about (laughs) as inflammatory as you could get. Well, land values were plummeting because the, the subsidies were being pulled out of farming. But that's how New Zealand got to subsidy-free farming, which is, 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 is much healthier and one of the few countries in the world to do it. So there's, there's short-term pain for long-term gain. But when you're looking at these island charts, you're seeing massive long-term gain. When I, um, I've had on the show uh, Ewan McQueen, who's written a wonderful book called One Sun in the Sky, and if you haven't read it, Bryce, I heartily recommend it to you. It's yes, I know you, and I would like to read it. I it's a beautiful, it, so. beautiful book. And he, you fall in love with these great New Zealanders before the signing of the treaty, at the signing of the treaty, and more particularly after the signing of the treaty. And there were Maori leaders and European leaders, English leaders, who had this extraordinary vision of 
a country working together and there were all these problems, you know, um, fights and arguments and disputes over land or who did want and there'd be hotheads wanting to seek revenge. And then there were these amazingly calm voices who were looking past, if you like, the immediate upset and the immediate conflict to a, and they had a vision of a future. And it's spellbinding because this is them in their words. You know, they were giving speeches to calm down uh, the country. And I was so impressed by their ability to lift, to even see it, if you know what I mean. It's 1860 and that they could see a future looking past the immediate problems. It'd be like being in the darkest days of World War II and seeing, you know, the, a, few, a prosperous future. And and it is a very interesting thing about Time Horizons and, of course, um, news and politics is all the here and now. Economics is looking um, further out and then these uh, people who have great political leadership and cultural uh, and social leadership, they're looking out beyond uh, generations. Um, and that's what you got with that one sun in the sky, definitely the the time horizon. Um, and also thinking through the implications. Um, my daughter went off to school. This is three years ago. And they were running a campaign uh, in the school, they had the kids writing projects about how to stop child labour. <laughs> uh, uh, my oldest daughter, who's called Liberty, someone had sent them her the books called the Tuttle Twins, which are very expensive books, but they're wonderful. And they're children's books written um, on a free market basis. And so Liberty did the speech about how you were basically cutting off your nose to spite your face. Because um, it's it's the the way of poverty to have to have your children work for for a living, and if you denied them that work, uh, who was going to provide for them? How are they going to provide for themselves? And um, as she explained it, her poor teacher was left stuttering because she had no argument against her, but nonetheless marked her down because they just have this basic failing of economics and of the natural condition of uh, humankind, which is one of grinding poverty. Yes, yeah. So um, we, we need to work on that. Tell me, we had a cultural difference in Ireland compared to New Zealand. We're in Ireland. They were open and positive about foreign investment right through the school system, right through the country. They could see the benefits and feel the benefits compared to New Zealand. What other differences were there? That those, uh, well, I wasn't on the mission, but those were the the two big messages which um, uh, the the people on the mission uh, brought back, and they they're both dear to the initiative's heart. You know, education uh, is so important for kids, critical for a country's future. Really, that you have a good education system, and ours is clearly failing and heading in the right in the wrong direction. So that was a big thrust. Um, then uh, and then behind the productivity growth, 
the big story, the big contrast um, with New Zealand was for Ireland's openness to uh, foreign direct investment. And um, actually, actually, I think I might be wrong on that uh, productivity per capita. That 14%, might, uh, 14 times higher might have been um, foreign direct investment per capita. But um, the difference is, is more like fourfold, I think, looking at the chart. Okay. Um, so yeah, so that was that was the next big thing in terms of detail was uh, the degree to which Ireland had, had been successful in uh, attracting um, foreign direct investment compared to New Zealand. Isn't it interesting that we have tended to look at micro changes to the economy? You know, getting rid of this regulation, getting rid of that, and what you're discussing here. Are big cultural issues like it's not of course it's the regulation of foreign investment but before that before we think about regulation it's the attitude and the cultural view of foreign direct investment if the people hate it if they've been taught to hate it if they've been told that this is bad then the politicians follow and it's seen as a as at were at best a necessary evil in New Zealand. Oh well, you know, we've got to let these people invest in New Zealand. Same with the education system. We've tended to separate out, oh, there's economic policy and then there's education policy. And here's the initiative concentrating hugely on education, because it's not only necessary to have a prosperous and open society is to have people well schooled well-educated, understanding the world around them and open to ideas, it's crucial to economic performance. You know, it's it's not just about tax rates and red tape, is it? No, no. There's, there's a cult, culture, and, and culture and narratives really matter. And for a country to have a narrative in which people aren't being polarised into tribes, like in Ireland, you know, Catholic versus Protestants, or always long been a, a sense of polarisation. Um, but we're, we're becoming much more tribal in New Zealand, I think, and, and losing, or well, Don Brash and others are doing their best to retain the narrative of, of one person, one vote, uh, everyone's the same, don't treat everybody uh, equally, regardless of their religion or their ethnicity or their language, etc., um, that that narrative seems to be fading in New Zealand, and um, it, uh, it's becoming more polarizing. And uh, what's in it for me and my group um, is is a very dangerous narrative that's developing in, in New Zealand, and um, needs needs to be strongly resisted. That um, you know, our DNA is all essentially the same. The colour of our skin is just a superficial sort of thing. Mm. Um, your background, you know, your 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 family background and history is what it is. But get on with it. Um, you don't. You're not tied by that. You can you can make what you want to of your own life um, and escape your predicaments. And work is such a crucial part of that. It's a social activity. And um, it gives people a sense of achievement. And if people are sitting on welfare, there's no sense of achievement in that. And if they've been cut out of jobs and can't get work, 
or you start to feel you can't contribute to society and you start to feel worthless. Um, so, yeah, uh, uh, so so to get precious about, too precious about the quality of the job and then to shut people out and keep them on welfare is um, a pretty evil thing. I don't mean that the people doing that are evil, but they're not thinking through, in my view, the longer-term consequences. The um, Yes, that the way we disdain a job at McDonald's or a cleaner's job or a menial job um, when you learn everything starting yeah. out working at McDonald's or working as a cleaner or mowing lawns um, and yet these jobs have a well that they're treated with disdain and um, by the powers that be i feel or the elite and and so to the people that do them yeah uh, too many people only go to university and and don't yes. I, I had a dramatic example my you know my wife was a teacher at nine college some decades ago some pretty rough kids there and we went into mcdonald's um for a bit of a fundraising occasion and the young they're all young people there they're lifting the minimum wage hadn't shut uh, young people out of McDonald's, and there was this this young guy there, absolutely focused on the job, going like the clappers had it, and um, sparky and enjoying himself. And Lee looked at him and said, "He was pretty well a dropout from Nanai College. We couldn't get him to do anything. It was just endless trouble." <laughs> and you had a chat to him, and um, he had a chance of getting flown over to the US. Um, for the McDonald's competition about who could do hamburgers the fast, fastest. <laughs> so, so he was just on a high. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? I, 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 um, I just think that's absolutely true. And he will probably end up employing all the bright kids that are accountants and um, uh, lawyers. He will be their boss. If you know what I mean, yeah, yeah that's right. At yeah. university, I had a very dear friend who dropped out after year one, and went off. And the last we heard of him, he was shearing sheep on the Chatham Islands, and um, he emerged years. And I felt dreadful. Oh, poor guy! You know, he missed out in his exams. He should have done more work. And there he is, you know, shearing sheep. Well, he returned some years later and employed everyone that graduated with <laughs> science degrees and, and law degrees and accountancy yeah. degrees because um, he he wasn't selling his credentials. You know, he was selling his ability to think and 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 and, and to work hard. And so, when we again, when we're talking about this um, education, it's the culture. Uh, within the schools that we're creating. And you and I could talk about that at some length because, um, oh my goodness, you know, it's not a, it's not a work ethic or a, there's, there's, there's truth to search for and it's hard to get. Um, it seems to me a lot of the schooling now is activist or project based. Um, and Elizabeth Rata is fabulous. I must get her on again because she's fabulous at that, describing great. this, and, and she describes what's happening in the schools, and then I look at what my kids are doing, and I think, oh, my goodness. You'll be pleased to know that my oldest daughter, her current plan is she's 12, 
Uh, she's very, very bright, does very, very well at everything. Her current plan is as soon as she's able to, she's leaving school and going to work for McDonald's. And um, her plan is to, she's got a three-step plan. One, leave school as soon as I can, work for McDonald's. Two, open a restaurant. Three, become a billionaire. And <laughs> I think there's a few steps between two and three that she needs <laughs> to develop, but she's she's making a start. And I don't discourage it. No, no. That's great. Because I think um, there's nothing more dreary than uh, these kids going off to university without a clue what they're going to do with their life and ending up at 23, 24 without a clear goal and thinking about going back to university and sort of not achieving adulthood, if you know what I mean. Um, you sort of, you got to keep moving and it's the best years of your life to be doing stuff and to be learning stuff. And I just look at it and I think, man, they're just not producing that, the go-getters that I suspect uh, Ireland is doing. Now, just another thing that occurs to me Bryce talking about this, I well remember an economist friend of mine telling me that you tend to live in a redistributive socialist state if you make your original living as a country extracting resources. And he explained it like this, that you're sitting there in New Zealand and you see people coming here and they take the gold, they take the whales, they take the seals, they take the trees, they take the sheep. And you see everything going away and you don't see what's being built. And so you see uh, economic development as a zero-sum or negative-sum game because, oh, we had trees and now they're gone. Oh, we had whales and now they're gone. Whereas he said, if you live in Hong Kong, or Singapore, you're sitting on a rock. <laughs> you know, you've got, you realize that you have to produce to live and that you're sitting in New Zealand and you're not realizing that you're producing to live. You think you're just extracting and extracting and extracting. Have you come across that idea? Yes, yeah. Well, that's the, the great Henry Simon um, debate, isn't it? The view that, um, the environmentalist view, it comes out of, of Malthusian theories yes. that um, human population growth is going to exhaust the, the, the world's resources and we're, we're, we're going to run out. But of course, that that fails to see the dynamic adjustments processes and the price mechanism. And if you're not taught economics, you don't understand that. But Roger Kerr used to have that lovely one-line one rebuttal of, of that uh, myopic sort of tunnel vision and it was well the stone age didn't end because people were in out of stones yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny right we we ran yeah. out of rocks yeah, and so the, people people will, who don't understand that will talk about the world running out of oil or this or that well it, well it will never happen not because the humans anyway because the price will get so high that people will switch to something else and they'll invent new ways of doing things. And that's that's the that's the real downfall of the Methusian stuff. He he couldn't conceive that the world would um, get so much more efficient at agriculture 
that instead of having eighty percent of of people working on the land, you'd get down to five or seven percent, mm. and people would be eating a lot, lot more food and that. So that's the other thing about us economists, I think, because we look further ahead um, and worry more about quality of institutions and incentives. Um, we're more optimistic. Um, it's I a think. funny thing. It's a funny yeah. thing because I studied economics to prove why why it was wrong, and and because I was an environmentalist, and all these economists were going around with this uh, cheery, optimistic view, which I clearly knew was wrong because they didn't understand how the physical world worked. And so I went off and studied economics, and very quickly discovered that it was me that was wrong. And there was a depth of understanding and 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 a nuance in economics that I I hadn't appreciated, and uh, and in particular that there's this ultimate resource which is called human ingenuity or the human mind, mm. and um, if you allow for entrepreneurship, um, yes, um, it's extraordinary and it's been extraordinary over our time and every doomsday prophet has been um, proven wrong. Um, but there is one thing, and listeners are troubled by this, Bryce, and this is what you and I would call, I think, I think I can include you in, there's this idea of this crony capitalism that's now occurring, and it's very, very problematic, I think, and it's very off-putting, and the idea is you have these environmental companies you know and they're investing in wind technology and they're investing in this and governments or the film industry uh where governments sidle alongside them and help them and give them direct money uh lighten their load give them a free pass with uh regulation and that leaves a sour to taste in your mouth and there's and I have to say, I share it. We have this grave concern about BlackRock because I have no problem with uh, institutional investors investing in New Zealand. I welcome it. But you feel as though when it's done at a government level and that the Prime Minister's meeting with these investors, that deals are being done that aren't in our necessary interests. Would you care to comment on that? Yeah, um, it's always intrigued me why Labour governments, with the exception of the Longe government, promote corporate welfare because um, uh, governments have political incentives, businesses have uh, incentives to make profits, to get their hands on money. Uh, and the danger is when governments get involved with welfare, um, with, with corporates and deals, that the money will flow from taxpayers through government and, and into the hands of pockets it shouldn't be throwing into. But, um, and, and Roger Douglas and Ruth Richardson largely got rid of corporate welfare to their, their great credit, but it's been brought back in. I thought, I mean, I thought New Zealand first sort of provincial growth fund was just appalling from that point of view and i see the auditor general to give him credit has written reports saying there isn't nearly enough accountability uh for where that money's gone and it's, you know, it's not all clear where all of it has gone um so yeah yeah um 
governments, in my view, and that's the argument for privatization again, um, that governments' interests are not commercial. When you get them involved in commercial enterprises, there's usually no good justification for it, no public good justification. It's and it weakens the it gives the government itself a conflict of interest. As a regulator, it should be um, sitting over um, the companies that's regulating and be independent of them, so it's impartial. But when it's running the company itself, another part of the government is. Um, it's compromised. There's a conflict of interest be, be, between the two roles and the politicians sitting up above them um, have got an incentive to sort of massage that over and, and not give it... Not, and not, and we've, seen this, we've seen this blow up in the last six years on a massive scale with the provincial fund, which is just a political slush fund, where it's yeah. being handed out by politicians without any uh, accountability. We're seeing money handed to uh, journalism, which is so obviously wrong. Um, yeah. The idea that you would hand money over to uh, newspapers and then actually require, as part of that deal, that they not write about certain things or they write about certain things in terms of approved government narrative is horrific. And yet we've hardly blinked an eye. Uh, we're now seeing these this co-governance, which is the worst of the worst, where we've established iwi companies or corporations, large corporations controlling huge resources, who have had a prime say on resource planning, where government policy goes, and therefore can influence to favour their corporation. But now we're going to add to it um, an extreme level of co-governments where it's like a 50-50 uh, sharing thing. This is like um, going back to the worst of what we used to see in the third world, in India and in Fiji, where the institutions of good governance are completely broken down and greed and graft come to the fore. It's not a it's not a people thing, it's not a race thing. It's a consequence of the way the rules have have get established, right? Yeah, and not treating everyone as equal, creating privileges. I mean, yeah, yeah Roger Douglas's one liner for what he was about was eliminating privilege. Yeah. Yes. We're, we're busy re-establishing them and it's very divisive and very polarising and it's not going to produce the outcomes which people want. They think that they're going to see people at the bottom doing better, but they're not. And um, Thomas Sowell explained that with many of his publications, why affirmative action gives disappointing results. Well, we've got the added added problem because... We are so intermingled that you see, um, like, if you're in America, there's quite a line between black America and white America. In New Zealand, there's no such hard and fast line. And you see these um, this ill-ease being created because your great-great-great-grandfather happened to be uh, someone, right? 
and and the the potential for conflict and upset is extreme is it not oh yeah it's it's, 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 How do you see, you're sitting in Wellington, you've sat around government and you understand economics and incentives, and Oliver Hartwich was on, and he was amazing because he was optimistic and positive and thinking the best of people and that in a piecemeal way, we can reverse this and go get back out into the sunny uplands, which I guess is what we did in the in the beginning in the eighties in my lifetime. How do you see this reversing itself in New Zealand as we go forward? I, I the way I'm thinking about it is that debates in New Zealand are highly derivative of what's going on overseas. So when New Zealand liberalised, we were following what Maggie Thatcher was doing in England, Ronald Reagan in, in the US, and Hawke and Keating in Australia. All this, all this polarising diversity, cancel culture sort of stuff and um, intersectionality is a drive to divide us and to try and make as many as people as possible see themselves as uh, victims of a, of an oppressive sort of system and therefore unable to really fend for themselves except by ripping someone else down and um we we've been following in that our universities have been following in that they haven't been leading in that so my sense of it is that when the tides hopefully swings back to more of a of a view about every person deserving equal treatment and of being of equal worth but but before the eyes of the state that and universities getting off this divisive sort of extremism that's got to come from the us in particular and i'm seeing signs of it there yes and um and and the uk and this free speech uh, movement is a very important part of trying to head off um, this intolerance, uh, which this um, this victimhood um, drive is is creating. We're also. I think you're right. I think that's a great. I hadn't thought of this before. You said it because I don't know whether it's just me, but looking at the US and the UK, you feel there's a sickness of it, and it's gone too far if you know what I mean, they've gone too far too quickly. And there's this massive resistance now. And it's also coming at a level of a principle, you know, so it's not an argument about you can't shut me down. It's an argument in favor of free speech. Uh, it's not an argument about whether this racial group should get this or not. It's an argument about everyone being treated equally. And so there's this resurgence of uh, looking at it and saying, hang on, there are some important principles here. And the other fascinating thing to me to watch is how it's whoever is pushing this and however it's being pushed, they can't stop themselves. They've got to go to the absurdity. And then they've got to turn on each other 
And you can see that happening too, can't you? Yes, you can. Um, I I particularly follow the the gender stuff um, because I find that sort of easy to follow. It's not like climate change or um, pandemic planning or something like that. It's like I think a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl, and yes, there can be some anomalies. But this idea um, now of you have an inner gender soul that is really you and your authentic self has just gone to the nth degree um, and you can see the absurdity of it, you know, starting to collapse almost under its own weight. And so you'd like to think that, and you see sporting codes woke, waking up to it as, as as particular competitions get destroyed by a mediocre male turning up and winning gold. Yeah. And and that and that and that will uh, hopefully turn it well. That's I. I love talking to the New Zealand Initiative, Bryce, because I can get a little down, you know. And um, Oliver's view was very optimistic. Uh, your view is optimistic because just like we chose to go down this path, we can choose to come out of it, right? And we've seen Ireland, um, an absolute European basket case, to being literally unbelievable not a rock star economy like you know we like to pretend we had in 2017 we're talking a seriously good uh economic performance beating singapore oh my goodness it can be done yeah and um we i, I don't want to leave listeners uh with with the view that uh we just have to wait for the rest of the world to change um I, I support, I'm not a member, I'm not a, an executive member of it, the Free Speech Union, but yes. that, that's a really important part of helping New Zealand get out of this divisive hole. And I think it's doing a great job. So yes, uh, yeah, things yes. like the Free Speech Union are things we as, as individuals can do something about. Just before you sign off, um, right now, I was, you know, I was, you know, I got my figures utterly wrong on, and uh, mixing up investment per capita and income per capita. So for the podcast, in 2020, New Zealand's income per capita was 42,500 uh, 42, US dollars. And in Ireland, it was 120,000. So that was 2.6 times New Zealand's wow. figure. Yeah, it, you know, massive either way, but very um, <laughs> amazing. 14. Well, thank you, Bryce. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've been talking to uh, Dr. Bryce Wilkinson, as you can see, just uh, a wonderful human being, a wonderful analyst, and he always brings us back to reality. And he's done that for me for most of my career. He's been amazing. Uh, Bryce used to help me when I was an MP and a minister. He helped anyone that asked for it. And he had a great way of um, sometimes annoyingly because you were caught up in politics, but bringing you back to reality. Bryce, you're a total treasure. Thank you for coming on your show, our show. You have a, a great rest of your show. For everyone else, you can remember, you can text me at zero, uh, 2057, email me inbox at Reality Check Radio. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.